Genau. Uh, continue. Okay, we'll start it again. Uh, it's, it's uh, as Tim knows, a great personal pleasure for me to, to welcome uh, Tim Lockley to, to our webinar. Tim is professor of history at Warwick. He's the author of several books, most recently and relevantly uh, for this evening, Military Medicine and the Making of Race. Uh, and uh, he's, I'm also very pleased to say he's the associate editor of Slavery and Abolition, which means I speak to him more or less on a daily basis. His title this evening is uh, The West India Regiments in the War of 1812, uh, and we will proceed as usual. Uh, there'll be plenty of time for a Q&A, uh, and I'm sure you're all familiar with the process of either uh, asking a question in chat or uh, in raising your hand. So I will pass it over to, to Tim. Thank you, Gad. I'm hoping you can see my PowerPoint. Yes. Good. Um, oh, well, that's really helpful. That's just hidden it. <laughs> it's my notes from me. Oh, how do I do that? Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to do something a bit weird. I'm gonna have to look, you're gonna have to look at it like this, I'm afraid, because otherwise I can't see my notes. It, 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 it might have my whole screen disappears. So, um, so yes, this is a, uh, a talk about the West India Regiments in the War of 1812. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the West India Regiments are um, um, regiments created in the Caribbean from 1795 onwards, and they are uh, they're made up of uh, men of African descent, um, and they are enlisted into the British Army. And here is an example of uh, you know what these regiments would have looked like. This is a man wearing the usual you know red coat of the British Army. This is a Fifth West India Regiment soldier from 1814, so absolutely the time that we're talking about. Um, and uh, one of the things that that is worth sort of touching on today, I think, which is relevant to obviously to our um, uh, uh, contemporary uh, history is that we we, we recently had a, a headline about the erasure of non-white soldiers from uh, history and the, the erasure of the West India regiments from the War of 1812 is, is an absolutely uh, classic example of that. Um, so what I wanted to do when I set out was to try and establish you know what the people in the US knew about the West India regiments at the time of the War of 1812 in the, in the years beforehand uh, how those notions about the West India Regiments actually impacted the war, uh, and then how the West India Regiments themselves actually impacted the war. So firstly, how the idea of them impacted the war, and then how they actually militarily impacted the war. Um, so we know that uh, the, uh, the US knew about the West India Regiments, and that's because they report on the uh, Caribbean War um, quite you know, regularly throughout you know, the 1790s into the first decade of the 20, uh, of the 19th century. So for example, uh, and this is a newspaper clipping which I'm showing you, um, they report on the fact that the first West India regiments uh, won battle honours at Dominica and in Martinique in 1809 and in Guadeloupe in, in 1810. Uh, and here uh, we have the Connecticut Journal from 1805 uh, saying that uh, these uh, black troops have been engaged during the past and present war and their behaviour has gained commendation uh, and it's owing to them in an eminent degree that the British flag now flies at Dominica. 
Uh, and during the conquest of Guadeloupe, a Boston publication uh, reported that the black troops appear to have behaved most gallantly. So there's, a, there's certainly their military prowess is well known uh, in the US. However, they also know quite a bit about uh, the, the dangers and the threats that, that, that local islanders uh, uh, feared about the West India Regiment. So, for example, the mutiny of the 8th, 8th West India Regiment in Dominica in 1802 is widely reported. The, uh, the authoritative account, which comes from the Dominica Journal uh, and then appears in newspapers in Barbados and Solution and Antigua, is also then reprinted in its entirety in the New, in the New York Post uh, on the 22nd of May 1802, uh, and then subsequently copied and reprinted. Uh, and they talk quite a lot about the fact that the, uh, the um, treatment of white officers by the mutineers was particularly violent, uh, and, um, you know, they're, they're quite sensationalized accounts, I guess. Um, and they generally pay very little attention to the actual causes of the mutiny, uh, you know, amongst which were pay withheld, being made to work like slaves, clearing swampland, uh, and instead they stressed, uh, quote, the inexpressible fury of the black murderers. That was the big headline, I guess. That's the sort of the red top uh, headline about the West India regiments. And what made this, of course, worse was that this was a trusted regiment, or uh, the steadiest and most respectable corps, according to one report. Uh, and yet the men were prepared to murder all their officers, even as they were in bed. Uh, now, the fact that British military commanders in the West Indies didn't actually blame the 8th West India Regiment very much, and they generally pointed the finger of blame at the governor of Dominica, um, Governor Johnston, that's not reported in the US at all. It is reported in British newspapers, but it's not reported in the US uh, press at all. Uh, and if that wasn't bad enough, the US also reports on various fictional mutinies of the 8th West India Regiments, for example, in 1806 uh, in Tobago, and uh, in, 18, uh, in 1811 in Montego Bay. So here's, here's a fictional report. Um, and these are sort of confused and garbled accounts that are manufactured and reported on as you know, genuine revolts. Uh, and one thing, this actual report, which they says at one point, the, the number of uh, uh, black mutineers and, and insurgents is estimated at 3000. Um, this is a common trope about how the US reports on the West India regiments in this early period, they consistently overstate the number of uh, black soldiers that there are uh, in the Caribbean. So here um, they're saying that there are about 3,000 um, black soldiers you know, uh, in Montego Bay, whereas actually there's not even 3,000 black soldiers in the entirety of the Jamaican command, which includes Jamaica and the Bahamas and Belize. Uh, and, and in fact, throughout the entire Caribbean, there's perhaps about six and a half thousand. Uh, members of the West India Regiments uh, in this uh, time period. Uh, and yet, um, here's another uh, newspaper report uh, that, uh, this is, I think the, one of them, yes, this is the, um, uh, the one on the right is the Cooperstown Federalist uh, that, and this is on the eve of the War of 1812, talks about uh, that Britain has 25,000 black troops in the West Indies. Uh, and the one on the on the left, you know, it's a bit more conservative, says 10,000, but that's still overestimating the actual side of the West India Regiments by about 50%. So, um, and it's now that we get begin to understand, you know, why these reports are quite so you know, significant. Uh, it's not simply because of their numbers, you know, exaggerated though they are, that the West India Regiments were actually a threat. It's because they were formed into military regiments and, quote, inured to a strict 
military discipline. So these were not an informal militia, easily cowed, but rather they were battle-hardened troops who had spent the last decade confronting French regiments with significant success and venturing into the mountains of the Caribbean to hunt maroons. And since the British plan during the War of 1812 was widely understood to involve an invasion of the South in order to, quote, free and arm all the Negroes under their orders and officers to act against the whites. The faith that some slaveholders usually placed in the ability, inability of enslaved people to organize themselves began rapidly to dissolve. Now, we first really see uh, the West India regiments coming into play in the Chesapeake campaign of 1813 and 14. So uh, Admiral Cochrane, who is the overall charge of the, of the British flotilla, uh, the British fleet in uh, 1814, he issued a proclamation, uh, and there's a copy here, this is from the National Archives, um, on the 2nd of April, 1814, offering to all those who may be disposed to emigrate from the United States, the choice of either joining British forces engaged in the current form of conflict or being sent with their families to settle in a British territory as free settlers. And he prints a thousand copies of this uh, um, proclamation uh, and it, they're given to raiding parties that uh, touch on the shores of the Chesapeake to hand out. Um, and it has an immediate effect because enslaved Virginians flock to British lines. So they, if they encounter a British raiding party, then enslaved people come and uh, you know, join in, or they make their way on little boats out of British ships. Uh, and there's you know, hundreds and then very quickly thousands of these people. So by early May of 1814, so only about a month after um, this original proclamation, then the Rear Admiral George Coburn reported that he dispatched 150 formerly enslaved people to Bermuda uh, and he'd kept 38 of the men to train as soldiers. And both training and recruiting was being done by some members of the, of the 6th uh, West India Regiment. Uh, Coburn had no previous experience of black soldiers but very quickly he professed himself pleased with these very fine fellows whom he thought will neither show want of zeal or courage when employed by us in attacking their old masters. More importantly, the hope that Cochrane's proclamation would exacerbate the fears already prevalent amongst the white population appeared to be working. So Coburn reported to his superiors that Virginians already know of your attentions respecting the blacks, and it has caused a most general and undisguised alarm. They expect Blackie will have no mercy on them and they know he understands bushfighting and the locality of the woods as well as themselves. And they can perhaps play hide and seek in them even better. So by mid-June, Coburn was employing his new black recruits in raiding parties and taking pleasure in how uncommonly and unexpectedly well the blacks behave in the several engagements. And particularly noteworthy, he thought, was the control exerted by their white officers, who entirely prevent their committing any improper outrages, he said. Uh, and so this organization of uh, the, uh, these new colonial forces, they, they call the colonial marines, uh, was modeled on the West India regiments with white officers uh, leading them and, and uh, white officers and black NCOs from the 6th West India Regiment are involved in that process. And so, both 
these black soldiers from the West Indian regiments and the colonial Marines are then involved in the, uh, the March on Washington in, in the August of 1814. They're involved in the Battle of Bladensburg and we have reports of their um, uh, incurring some casualties. Uh, and then they're also present at the burning of Washington. And unless you look pretty carefully in war office records, you would never know they're there because any contemporary description or painting of what went on at Washington uh, or at Bladensburg doesn't show a black face. There's no, there's no black soldiers show. And yet there are uh, plenty uh, present, you know, probably several hundred in fact. Um, by the end of this campaign, um, it was no secret that uh, in the following year or in the following months that the next British target was going to be uh, New Orleans. And what, it, what this force is some people in the US to do is to rethink whether they should raise their own uh, bodies of black soldiers. So in November of 1814, the Washington Advertiser prints a letter from a gentleman living near Ohio to a member of Congress, and it lays out a plan to raise an army of blacks in order to combat a tardiness in filling our regiments. So it's meant to supplant, you know, these missing soldiers. Um, slave owners would be expected to give up to a quarter of their enslaved men and thereby save the rest, perhaps, from the grasp of the enemy. The state would give regular army pay to owners in compensation while the recruits would receive clothing provisions and a quarter section of land at the expiration of service. And almost as an afterthought, the author confirms that military service would lead to emancipation from slavery. Mm. And like the West Indian regiments, these black recruits would be led by white officers because, and this is a really important sentence, uh, experience has proven that blacks thus organized make as good soldiers as European troops even more so because they are already possessed of the habit of subordination vital for a soldier. So this was a plan clearly influenced uh, by how the British had organized the West India regiments and the successful British use of black soldiers in the Chesapeake campaign of 1814 was forcing policy reconsiderations in the US. And this isn't the only time that this is proposed. There are two or three other um, uh, similar proposals going on at the same time, though actually none of them come to full fruition uh, before the end of the war. Um, now, since the British plan to target New Orleans was well known, then the US turned uh, to how they thought it was going to be delivered. So a lot of speculation in the press as to how they thought British, uh, the British would attempt to attack New Orleans. Now, the Baltimore Patriot uh, claimed to have learned from an intelligent friend who has lately had excellent personal opportunities in the West India Islands, that no less than 7,000 black troops from Africa would you any day in Bermuda, uh, clearly destined for an invasion of our southern states. This was completely unfounded speculation. And eventually the American press settled on a consensus that about two regiments of black troops were part of the British force that landed near New Orleans in December of 1814. The 1st West India Regiment and the 5th West India Regiments, which took part in this campaign, if, if they've been at full strength, have amounted to about 2,000 men. Uh, and the US generally estimated their number at 1,200, and the actual army data suggests they're only slightly out with that. I reckon it's about 1,300 uh, men. Uh, most of these people have been soldiers for many years, and they were all battle-hardened. They'd all been engaged in, in conflict with the French for a number of years. So the British commanders would have been confident that their experienced black soldiers would have been able to contribute fully to this campaign. But 
From the outset, the men of the two West India regiments really struggled to cope with uh, really inhospitable conditions in Louisiana. So while all the talk beforehand had been how these black soldiers were uniquely equipped to cope in tropical environments, the reality in Louisiana in December of 1814 was far different. The initial troop landings took place in heavy rain and, uh, and the swamp where the men were encamped offered no decent shelter. And the next day, severe frost set in. William Surtees, the quartermaster of the Rifle Brigade, recalled that the two West India regiments in particular suffered in consequence of the severe cold, a thing which they were totally unacquainted with and against which they were ill provided, having nothing but their light and thin West India dress to keep it out. Some, he said, fell fast asleep and perished before morning. This, of course, is a clear failure of army planners to provide shelter and warm clothing. Uh, so frost, while it's rare in Louisiana, it's not unknown. And when ice that was two inches thick was reported, then any inadequately uh, protected force would have suffered. Yet there's general agreement in both British and American commentary that the West India Regiment suffered more due to the cold because of an inherent racial weakness. And so the same ideology that affirmed the suitability of black bodies for tropical labor and hence slavery logically implied an inability to cope with cold. And it was the cold weather and intended sickness, reported the Philadelphia Gazette, that had rendered almost all of the black troops unfit for duty. No mention was made of the impact that the weather might have had on white troops, since it was evidently understood by people that whites were used to cold and could cope perfectly well with it. So despite this very poor um, opening to the campaign for the West India regiments, they did take part in the Battle of New Orleans. Um, and as we can see from um, this uh, modern day you know, uh, reproduction, uh, if you look carefully, the British uh, forces are at the bottom of this uh, plan, the American forces at the top. And you can see uh, at the extremes, both the left and the right hand were West India regiments, one deployed in the swamps, the other by the banks of the Mississippi River. And yet, uh, and here is a contemporary uh, painting of the British assault. Uh, this is the Mississippi River right at the, front, right at the front of us. There's not a single black face amongst the British troops. And yet we know there were probably 1300 of them involved in this battle. So here's a classic example of the erasure of uh, black troops at the Battle of New Orleans. Now, following the defeat at New Orleans, it's obviously it's an American victory and, and the, the, the British are forced to withdraw. Uh, some British officers admitted to their American counterparts that the cold weather had knocked up their black troops. <laughs> While one US commentator attributes their victory in part to the loss of their black troops who dying very fast owing to the frosts had to be sent off. Now, implicit in these statements is the speculation that if the Battle of New Orleans had been fought in August in the typical subtropical heat of Louisiana, the two full-strength West India regiments might have actually altered the outcome. So with the British forced into an ignominious retreat at New Orleans, uh, the Americans might, with some justifications, have felt that the war was over. And in fact, the peace treaty, although unbeknownst to any of the participants, had already been signed in Ghent in December. Um, but there was one final coda to the war, uh, and that also involved the West India regiments. So a week after the defeat at New Orleans, uh, Admiral Coburn landed on the Georgia coast. Um, 
and he landed here on Cumberland Island. Uh, and his forces included around 200 members of the 2nd West India Regiment, which were brought in from the Bahamas, as well as a force of colonial marines uh, from the Chesapeake. And they quickly captured not only all of Cumberland Island, but the town of St. Mary's. And the US press continued their by now long established overestimate of the number of black troops involved, the Charleston City Gazette had heard via a gentleman who left Savannah on Tuesday that 5,000 black troops were involved, which is probably 10 times the number of actually who were actually there. Uh, and these were, one newspaper said, the entire garrisons of Martinique, Guadeloupe and the British West India Islands, which is nonsense. Um, yet despite their modest numbers, the 2nd West India Regiment uh, um, did play a full part in the military campaign. The majority of the soldiers in the 2nd West India Regiment had seen active service during the siege and capture of the city of Santo Domingo in 1809. And the regimental historian recorded that the column that attacked St. Mary's, the town of St. Mary's, was headed by the 2nd West India Regiment. John Miller, a private in the Royal Marines, wrote to his brother that the black regiment employed on this service acted with great gallantry. Blackie had no idea of giving quarters and was with difficulty restrained from putting the prisoners to death. The Yankee riflemen fired at our men in ambush and Blackie on the impulse of the moment left the ranks and pursued them into the woods fighting like heroes. A poor Yankee disarmed, begged for mercy. Blackie replied, he no come in bush for mercy, and he immediately shot him dead. Now, Miller's letter was amongst a, a bunch of captured British correspondents, that, and it was widely reprinted in the American newspapers as an example of this casual brutality of American troops. And while the plunder taken by the troops in St. Mary's included cotton and tobacco and provisions, weapons and property estimated to be worth um, about £100,000 sterling. The real aim of the expedition was to entice the large local enslaved population to join British forces. And hundreds of enslaved people uh, took advantage of the offer, a bounty of $16 and a suit of British uniform. By the time Coburn actually evacuated the island in March 1815, he'd removed more than 1,500 uh, former slaves, uh, men, women and children, uh, from this area and to, and to Bermuda. Now, the War of 1812 was ultimately a watershed in the history of the West India Regiments. Their miserable experience during the New Orleans campaign seems to have confirmed the unsuitability of service uh, outside the Caribbean in the minds of military commanders. Admiral Cochrane reported to the Admiralty, from what I have witnessed, the West India Regiments during the late expeditions can never be of use upon the continent of America, except during the summer months. So shortly um, after 1815, the 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th West India Regiments were disbanded and resettled in Honduras, Trinidad and in Sierra Leone. Before 1815, the British Army had found their black soldiers to be invaluable. They'd proved themselves time and time again to be brave and reliable when pitted against the enemy. Army commanders had clearly harboured hopes that the West India Regiments might prove useful beyond the tropics. But after 1815, the West India Regiments would only serve in the Caribbean and in West Africa where the astronomically high mortality rate amongst white regiments left the deployment of black soldiers as the only solution. The involvement of the West India regiments in the War of 1812 not only determined their future deployment by the British Army, it also had a number of significant consequences for the United States. 
The mere existence of the West Indian regiments gave Americans pause for thought, and it determined actual military strategy in one instance, with the state militias of Georgia and South Carolina unable to join the force defending New Orleans, lest their large enslaved populations fled en masse to the British. The well-reported military successes of black soldiers in the West Indies also forced Americans to contemplate new military strategies, such as the recruitment of their own black population. Moreover, the War of 1812 confirmed to many slaveholders that enslaved people in the US would seize any realistic and viable chance for freedom. They were simply waiting for an opportunity. They'd done so during the Revolutionary War in alliance with the British in 1812, and they would do so again during the Civil War in support of the Union. The fear that American slaves were fundamentally disloyal and would readily collaborate with an enemy never dissipated while slavery as an institution persisted. The retention of the West Indian regiments as a garrison force in the Caribbean fueled that fear and suspicion in the antebellum South uh, as late as the 1840s. During one period of tension in 1841, some in the US fretted that Britain had the capacity to dispatch an army of 200,000 blacks to invade the South. This significant and continuing overestimate of the strength of the West Indian regiments by the US press can be seen as a symptom of that fear. And it's clear that the West Indian regiments continued to be an excellent psychological weapon for the British long after the War of 1812 had ended. Thank you. I'll stop there. That's great. Let me just uh, unmute. Yes, that's really interesting. Start video. Excellent. That's really good. Really interesting. Um, lots of lots of uh, I think interesting questions. Oh, this is coming. Yes, lots of interesting questions. I think that arise. I mean, one I have several, uh, which I'll start off with. But those enslaved people who uh, were sent off to um, Bermuda, I mean, there probably is not much record of those people. But they were sent off as enslaved people. They became free. What happened to those people? Do we yeah. know? Yeah, they became free, and the the, the British. Um, um, naval commanders were absolutely adamant, more so than their bosses in London, that anyone who came and took shelter on a British ship was made free. They're sort of extending the Somerset decision, like, like exponentially, that just stepping foot on a British ship made you free. And uh, American slaveholders periodically under flags of truce go and try and reclaim their enslaved property from the British ships. And the British commanders say, you're welcome to come and ask. And they do. They go on board the ships and say, um, please come home. And universally, they all go, no. <laughs> so, and because uh, they say to the Americans, we're not making anybody leave. And they take them first to Bermuda. They don't really know what to do with them when they get to Bermuda. Um, because there's a bit of Bermuda under naval control, which is where they end up. And I think it's, it's called Ireland, Ireland, as, as in the, the country of Ireland. Um, and in the end, when the, the, the colonial marines are disbanded along with these other regiments of the West India regiments um, in 1816, they're sent to Trinidad. Yeah. And they settle in Trinidad and they, they form a group which are called Americans. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, the British are absolutely adamant that they're not enslaved. Now, the Americans are busy putting it about that um, uh, what happens is that they are. Um, uh, that the British are re-enslaving them in Jamaica and Barbados and places like that. Uh, and that appears in the US press. And the, and the, the 
people like Cochrane and Coburn are incensed that this is an insult to their honor, that this is not happening. Uh, and they, so they, they make a point whenever they can of saying, we are not doing this. These are free people and they are staying free. Uh, and, you know, basically we don't care that you're complaining. So we're just gonna, you know. It's, it's quite, there's a comment, <clears throat> picking up about your point, there's a comment uh, from Guy Granham in the uh, chat about, um, I think it was a pamphlet uh, about the Americans, free black settlers in Trinidad, yeah. by sadly the late John Weiss. Uh, he used to come in fact occasionally to, to our seminars. Um, and um, I think there is a question about uh, are there similar villages in other places of the formerly enslaved? I'm not sure there are actually. I think the Americans were unique, but you may know, you may know better than that. You, Tim, may know better than that. Oh, sorry. Um, I think, well, well, somebody's commented in the chat that these the, the descendants of these people were sort of absorbed into Trinidadian society and they still live there, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, she, I think the question uh, was, were, sorry, Tim. I think the question was, were there other villages, oh, other oh. other uh, uh, enslaved uh, people or free people who were sent to other places in the Caribbean? Yes, and, yes, and, yeah, yeah. there were. There yeah. were, there, there are certainly similar communities, but made up from disband the disbanded West India regiments in Belize, um, you know, British Honduras as it was, and also in Sierra Leone. And there's, there's quite large um, bodies of disbanded soldiers um, settling up, setting up new villages in Sierra Leone. And they're called uh, you know, sometimes, you know, after British military commanders. And so I, and whether these actual places are still named that, I don't know. But at the time, certainly in the sort of 1820s, there are, there are documents from Sierra Leone that count that these people are still living there. They've created their villages. And there are even some interviews with these former soldiers and, and they, they tell you a bit about their life and you know what happened to them. Some of them have businesses because they're getting pensions from the army. Um, so they, they have an income, which of course is you know, not particularly typical for, um, for you know, free blacks. The, the army's, I mean, it might not be a huge amount, but it's something. So they're getting a few pence a day as being disbanded soldiers. Yeah. So uh, Laura, whom I know as Roseanne Adderley, uh, has a question for you. Yes, good evening. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, Laura is my legal name on the university Zoom. So it's my first name and I've started, okay. it, which is a terrible confusion to people who met me the first half of my career. A wonderful presentation. I wonder, Tim, if you could say what your assessment is of the way they are assessing these black soldiers. And I'll tell you what it calls to mind for me. When missionaries want money, they say, oh, the enslaved are eager to become Christians and I've got lots and lots of Africans. And if that doesn't work to get money, they say, you know, they're stubborn and I must work harder and therefore I need more money. So either assessment works. I, and I wondered after sort of, you know, sort of everybody's got all this racial analysis, either black people are scary or they're incompetent soldiers, you know, and I wondered sort of where, where you find kind of the level as it were, because it's sort of after, after the, after 1815, it's clear, well, the, they certainly were done in by the weather, all right, that they didn't do well in North America, but it seems that in general, the disposition of these officers is to say, these troops are great, but is that sort of, you know, sort of self-serving, depending on what they what they want for continuing to recruit them or puffing up their own careers or their success. Or I'm wondering what's really going on here other than uh, there's very set moments of racial fear, but what the quote unquote true assessment is of how, you know, how the forces are performing. Yeah, the, 
British military commanders in the Caribbean are usually, especially during the war, so up through through 1815, you know, in the Caribbean, uh, are usually full of praise for their black soldiers, that they think they are hardy, brave, um, you know, obedient, which, you know, what, these are all things you want in a soldier. You want them to do what they're told and to, do, you know, and they say that the things that they sometimes don't do quite so well, um, like, you know, the, the formal drilling and this, that, doesn't really matter because most of the time the warfare in the Caribbean isn't like that. It's it's go off into the mountains and find people and and you know and, and ambushes and the sort of light infantry type thing. They they're full of praise for their um, physical skills and especially things like um, their tracking skills, their um, accuracy in firing, uh, those okay. kind of things that they're full. I mean the actual. They love these black soldiers, um, and th these reports are generally really, really, really positive. Um, it takes a while for that to change, uh, and it changes you know, by the middle of the century. And then they're they're much more stereotypical. Um, you know, they're not as good. They're you know, I'd much rather have a white man. Um, and you know, they aren't all they're cracked up to be. But in this early period, they're you know, when they're actually using them in military conflicts, they're really full of praise. Yeah, I have other questions, but you've got other hands up. And okay. I apologize sure. if I run off, I've got a student coming. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Alison, would you like to ask your question? Thank you so much. Uh, so one of the things that I'm interested in is what happened to these folks once they've left or they've, they've been brought to these other spaces, right? Um, uh, what, what I know about the Americans in the in Trinidad is, of course, they come as free people and they're settled in these areas that are really very isolated. Um, apart from, you know, the weirdness of Trinidad that you, you still have enslavement when they're settled there. Um, and there's this whole kind of Spanish French culture because the British have basically just taken over Trinidad. So I'm interested in I guess some of these other places that you talked about, Tim, in Honduras and in um, Sierra Leone, and I guess in Bermuda, I'm assuming too, where um, these folks were, were allowed to settle by the British and how they interacted or not, or didn't interact with the enslaved blacks that were there. Yeah, generally, um... I think they are um, sort of kept apart. I think one of the reasons Trinidad is chosen is because Trinidad is, um, as the British would see it as empty. You know, it's not Jamaica and it's not Barbados. It's, it's a new British procession. While there are slaves in, in Trinidad, there are big areas of Trinidad that are, you know, depopulated or unpopulated comparatively, where they can be settled without basically interfering with the plantation um, um, slave society. Uh, the same is a, probably true of Belize because, um, you know, Belize is mainly swamp <laughs> and it's not, it's not, well, it's not, um, it's not a, a, a big plantation society like you would get in uh, Jamaica or in, you know, or even parts of Guyana or whatever. Um, so again, you can put people, you know, inland and, and almost forget about them. Um, Sierra Leone is the one we probably know more about because the Sierra Leone company keeps better records, even though they're not complete or anything like that. But it actually bothers to go out and, and talk to these people and count them and do a little assessments of them. So um, 
the interesting th there is how they interact with the other groups in Sierra Leonean society, because there are, of course, people native to um, Sierra Leone. Then it's where all the liberated Africans are dumped, you know, to use, a, <laughs> use a, a, a horrible phrase, but, you know, when the British are kicking them off other people's ships, they're just leaving them in Sierra Leone. And so there's like this tripartite society. Um, you'd, a better historian of Sierra Leone than me will, will be able to account for that sort of tension, but there is certainly a lot of tension between those groups. I think, you know, native, people native to that part of West Africa, people left there by the British, and then these uh, former uh, imperial agents, I guess, being left there. So I think that um, uh, if anybody who's from Belize on this call or uh, who's been to Belize would have to argue about your description of Belize as a swamp. Uh, <laughs> it's much more interesting than that. Uh, but let's move on to uh, the, there's a question in the chat uh, from Ian who says, does the evidence indicate that uh, West India Regiment troops routine, routine, routinely serve for longer periods than troops in British regiments. Uh, yes, um, uh, and th there's a there's two reasons for that. One, when the West India regiments were when people signed up, they were signed up for life, so they weren't signed up for a set period. Now, in reality, they weren't kept for life. They were retired when the army felt that they were no longer that useful, um, and they were retired to these places again. You know, Trinidad and wherever, um, but. Plenty of them served for 20 and 30 years. Uh, white regiments, I think the standard was 20 years, but a lot of them don't live that long. So, mm. uh, especially in the Caribbean. So they, yeah, white troops def definitely don't serve as long as, as, as black troops. Uh, and I, I'm just going back to Belize. My, my, my opinion of Belize is shaped by the, all the reports that I read of people who actually went to Belize and said, it's nothing but a swamp. And so, so I, I, but I claim no first-hand knowledge of Belize, so I'm really sorry about that. Well, those of us who've been to Belize and have connections to Belize, as one of our organizers does, does would have to disagree. Now, uh, Rhonda says that, uh, talking about the Americans in Trinidad, I don't think they were absorbed into Trinidad society. Uh, because, of course, they came as free people. Um, uh, and then there's a longer comment, yeah. there's a longer comment, which you can also see. Um, and there's a question from Zachary, who has his hand raised. Hi, all. Th thank you, Tim, uh, uh, for, this, for this great presentation. Thank you, Kate, Gad, for, for organizing. Look, I come here as, a, as an archaeologist that has studied British forts in, 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 in Dominica, including the Cabrits, where the 1802 revolt took place. Uh, and now here in Jamaica, where, where I work at, at, at uh, sites around Kingston Harbor, including Fort Augusta. Tim, I just want to say thank you. I, I really do appreciate the, the issue of erasure, uh, uh, because it's so very relevant to how we uh, imagine armies in the past, even all the way up, up into the present. So I, I, I appreciate that point. And as a historical archeologist, this, this information is not, it's not absent. You can read against the grain in, in the archive. You can go through the archives of, of, of soil uh, as, as, as archeologists do. I'm interested to know about, compared to what I, I know in, in the Caribbean, how you know, material spatial realities of, of black British troops in the US, if you've heard anything about that, garrison strategies, 
um, uh, during, during these campaigns, degrees of segregation, uh, whether it's marked in space between where white soldiers, black soldiers are living, or perhaps even the materials used for, for encampments. Uh, these are some distinctions I've, I've seen in my, my own research. And I'm, I'm wondering with, with all your experience and, and uh, uh, if you've come across anything like that. So thank you again all for, for, for the opportunity. Um, thank you. Uh, I guess, you know, campaigning camps, for example, the one that would almost certainly have been, you know, constructed in New Orleans, they are very ephemeral structures, aren't they? They are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're deliberately designed to be movable. So uh, there may be, um, it's well, difficult to know how people were, 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 were housed and garrisoned on those kind of campaigns. We know a lot more about how they were garrisoned in um, the Caribbean and they're nearly always garrisoned separately to white troops uh, and a lot of that is to do with ideas about um, uh, ideas about health and race and so uh, you know Jamaica is a good example so you know white troops um, are widely seen to be, you know, they, it's impossible for them to live at Fort Augusta. Fort Augusta is in the harbour and it's like a death sentence. That's how they describe it. It's a death sentence for, a white, for white troops to go and live there. And that's why they build up Park Camp. And that's why they eventually move the white troops to Newcastle, which is like 4,000 feet up. Um, and they do that because it's healthy, healthy for white troops. Whereas, you know, they, they, they think that the, the, the coastal forts um, are particularly healthy for black troops. And it's not, it's not like they think, um, you know, they're unhealthy, therefore we'll consign the black troops to that. They actually say, no, the coastal areas are the, are the healthiest places for black troops. And so we're doing them a favor by putting them in these, in these coastal forts. Um, and Newcastle can get cold, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, so and, and that's why- Cool, and that's cool why not cold. <laughs> And that's why they choose it because that's uh, and 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 they but they equally they wouldn't dare put um, black soldiers at Newcastle because they would get sick based on the ideas that come out of things like the New Orleans campaign. Um, the only time I've ever seen white and black soldiers garrisoned together in the same buildings is in Gibraltar, when the Fourth West India Regiment spends two years there, 1817 to 1819. And they're in the casemates barracks, which, you know, if you ever go to Gibraltar, that's the place where you sit and have a, you know, a nice drink in the afternoon. Uh, is that, that, you know, surrounded by, um, you know, cafes now. But um, that had a mixed garrison. Um, and we know they lived in the same buildings. So that's the only place I found that that happened. But usually in the Caribbean, um, white troops and black troops are segregated. Um, and usually the white troops got better accommodation than black troops. Um, not always, but, some, but mainly they did. I think Zachary described the very interesting uh, barracks in Newcastle as cold, would, would be far-fetched given the winter we've just had. Now there's, but, there, but you, don't have, you don't have to face that. Anyway, it's a very interesting chat uh, about reading recommendations and uh, Laura Adderley, whom I guess I now have to call Laura. I'm, I'm, I'm astonished by this. But anyway, there we are. All my life, I've called you something else. Um, my friends still do that. Hi, I see. Yes, yeah, so the, the, yeah. Strangers call me Laura. You what? Sorry. 
I said, strangers call me Laura, so please do continue calling me Roseanne. Okay. <laughs> I'm quite officious. Okay. I, um, I was wondering, is, sorry. Is, are there other people in the queue? Go ahead, please ask a question. If you want. No, or, Tim, Zachary, I wondered. Well, hang, hang on, Laura, oh, Roseanne. Uh, Zachary, did you finish? Did you want to ask something else? No, fine. Roseanne, please. I, I wondered if this is more from my local knowledge living in New Orleans. Is there any comment in the British, on the British side of this? Because uh, I've always wondered about this, about the free black soldiers fighting for the U.S. At the, in the battle at New Orleans, because the city now takes great pride in them. They're not very numerous. And it's it's sort of an, and Jackson, for all of his failings, and there are many, you know, he, you know, part of the reason, the, part of the reason some historians assert that they were successful is that he was willing, he said, look, we're going to have to, you know, recruit and get organized anyone really incapable. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, this British invasion is going to succeed. And I, I wonder if the British have a comment on them, because I know nothing, you know, of the actual battle, like what, and in some ways it gets to Zachary's question and your comment that the sources aren't particularly good on, on the ground during battle. But I wonder yeah. if they comment on them at all. Not that I've seen. Um, okay. And, uh, and they rarely comment on their own black troops, uh, the British, from the British side. So, I mean, there are some, but... Not as often as you'd think. And, and usually, especially because the, it's a bit of a disaster, they usually say they weren't as good as we thought they were going to be. <laughs> so, um, because, you know, you've sent them into, you know, sub-zero environment wearing a flimsy little <laughs> thing. So yeah. they were cold, not surprised. I'd be cold. Um, no, they don't particularly mention it. Um, and, you know, even when the Americans during the Revolutionary War have um, like French black soldiers, uh, from Saint-Domingue fighting on their behalf. Um, the British don't tend to mention it, but equally the Americans never mention the fact that there were way more black uh, combatants on the British side than there were on the American side. So yeah. um, I remember giving a paper in Savannah about the siege of Savannah um, in yeah. 1779 and pointing out that there's loads of local uh, enslaved people fighting on the British side. And, and, and local people didn't know that. They knew all about the French blacks from New Orleans fighting on their side, but, but uh, uh, no, so from, ha from Haiti, but they didn't know anything about uh, black people fighting on the British side, which there were thousands, so. Um. Yeah, no, it's, well, no, I was gonna say here, I've said this to people in New Orleans context, and they're like, are you sure of this? And I said, yes, I'm sure it's factual that there were black soldiers yeah. <laughs> among the British troops. And, and I would say, I do not know this, and it's not my area. I think that the uplifting of the free black soldiers in the War of 1812 is a, public history reshaping a public memory project of the relatively recent past. Yeah. Within the community of free people of color here, they were very proud of their service in the 19th century. But yeah. I think broader uplifting of their role within the war. Yeah, it it's, also, it's also at least partly, I think, an, an, an attempt by uh, you know, some Americans at the time to say that um, the black people were on their side when the facts of thousands of, Ameri of black Americans fleeing to the British ships tells a completely different story. That's the one they want to tell. So, yeah. you know, if they could say, oh no, they, they were all supportive of us and, we, and weren't, weren't we great? You know, and then look at what Jackson does, you know, Jackson's future yeah. career, which is just appalling. And, <laughs> so. and that's exactly the big, the biggest story, the bigger black story of the War of 1812 is the number of African-Americans who turned yeah. to the British. That is far and away a bigger story. Oh yeah, yeah. Still a hard sell in, academic and popular discourse in this country. Yeah, and it's and it's just it's just ignored the fact that there's probably three to four thousand 
from between Virginia and then Georgia who run away. And, and that's not counting the ones who ended up um, at that fort in Apalachicola in Florida the year after in 1816. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been several books written on that recently. And th that was again, all done by the British. And it, that's in a way a coder of a coder of a coder, but there are no, there are no West India regiments involved in that, but uh, th that's, you know, yeah, another sort of example of, you know, black rebelliousness in this era when everything's incredibly fluid. The, the, you know, the Americans control over the South is really weak um, and, and Native American groups are still really significant. Uh, the Creek, the Seminoles, they're all, you know, vying for power. And it's, by, it's really not very clear that the Americans are gonna come out being so dominant in by like say 1830 that they end up. I think Isaac has raised his hand. If you unmute yourself. Hi guys, thank you for that talk Tim, that was fascinating. Um, I just wanted to ask, circling back to something you said about kind of the skills and the capabilities of, of the West India regiments, um, you were mentioning that they are really good at tracking and ambush, counter ambush, all these kind of things. To what extent do you think those skills were kind of a result of experiences of warfare in Africa? Uh, I think it's quite likely. Um, we know that, uh, I mean, Manuel Barcia's book on, on African warfare being translated into the Americas, uh, it, it, you know, is the go-to one here. And um, a lot of the people who were captured into, um, into slavery and then sold on slave ships, as a lot of the young men are captured in war. Uh, and so it's quite likely they have these kind of skills anyway. And in 1797 through to 1807, in that 10 years, the army is buying people straight from the slave ships in order to put them in the West India regiments. And again, not widely known apart from by historians, the army owns more slaves in the Caribbean than any slaveholder, you know, does. And that's, again, we, we don't realize that, but they do. Uh, but with, you know, some really important caveats in that they own them as slaves because they buy them from slave ships, but then they treat them exactly the same as every other soldier. So they're not differentiated by the fact that they have been bought. They are given the same weaponry, the same accoutrement. They are um, sent off to fight. They are given the same barracks, the same foods, and then they are disbanded when they're no longer useful. Um, they never try and sell them. So, you know, once they're, once they're sick of them or they don't need them anymore, they don't say, well, I can now recruit my investment. And they spend, well, in modern day money, multi-millions on buying these people. Uh, and uh, Buckley's book does give us a figure, and I can't remember it now, but it's in the thousands, how many they buy. It's in the thousands. Um, and I think the, the fact that they come pre-skilled in warfare techniques, a, a significant number of them, uh, is probably really you know, crucial, more crucial than we'll ever really know, because one thing we lack with the West India regiments for a long period of time is first-hand testimony by then. Yeah. So, and then not, and then, uh, and uh, I should also add a caveat, although we tend to think of them as being Africans, and they are, a lot of them are Africans. Um, in the earliest years, there's a significant Caribbean population, um, which come from captured French islands. So a lot of them are from uh, uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique. Um, and there's a reasonable number are taken by the British from Saint-Domingue, when the British evacuate Saint-Domingue in 1798, then they're enlisted into the West India Regiment. Um, so it's a much more heterogeneous body in this first 10 years than it becomes, say, from about 1805, 6, 7, through till the 1840s. It is really very heavily African. Um, but in that earliest year, it's a little bit more, you know, poly, 
clot. Presumably, we have we have no. There can be no information about the integration of of formerly British West India regiment soldiers freed go into the communities uh, as free people, but uh, and then merge presumably uh, with the free black community. No, I mean we have very little information about that and. By, say, the 1830s and 40s, the policy of resettlement in you know, specific spaces, whether it be Belize or Trinidad, whatever, has sort of broken down because uh, these men now often have families in the Bahamas or, you know, one of St. Lucia, wherever, and they don't want to leave and they want to stay where they are. So, and they often do get, they, they just move into the community and they, they become, you know, regular folk, I guess. So, um, mm -hmm. And that's a part of a wider transition to being the, the, the entire regiment is much more um, Caribbean by say the 1840s and 1850s than it was before. And it's you know, generally Caribbean born men. Good. Uh, Steve has a question. Uh, yeah, uh, one thing that you haven't really mentioned uh, was that you know, given the appalling treatment of the European soldiers, uh, I mean, I've been reading uh, this about the... Uh, uh, I didn't see uh, what that was. Oh, sorry, it's uh, uh, Linda Coley's book on the uh, the lash and imperial slavery, uh, uh, an imperial soldiery. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I mean, flogging was, uh, seems to have been pretty endemic in the British army. Uh, and how does... Uh, how does that fit in with all this, really? You know, I mean, as I say, it's it's just uh, 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 that you know, the, as I say, the treat the treatment of the white troops was was appalling. So uh, you know, uh, uh, were the black troops treated equally badly, worse or better, or what? Yeah, they they, they certainly weren't treated better. <laughs> um, I did some statistical analysis of this, and they are in general treated a little bit worse. So they are more likely to be beaten uh, and they are more likely to get more lashes. And uh, you can also do an analysis of how many lashes, lashes they are sentenced to and how many they actually get. Because at some point, a surgeon is meant to intervene and say, enough's enough. And <laughs> they, they interview, intervened more uh, earlier for white people than they did for black people. And that's because the narrative of the time, and, and it's written down in some of these surgeons' records, is that black skin is thicker than white skin, therefore it can take more punishment than white skin. And, um, and that fits into a whole narrative of, you know, black people that feel pain and all this kind of stuff, which is really common in the medical literature of the time. So it's part of that environment that they're just buying into. Uh, and so we know that they are, you know, beaten, you know, more regularly than than white soldiers are um but there's no real evidence that they commit more offenses the, the you know white, white people certainly um uh, beat uh, sorry they the, um, had upon charges of drunkenness you know all the time uh, much more so than the black soldiers but the black soldiers quite commonly sell bits of their kit so they get charged with you know not having any trousers or <laughs> missing boots or something because they flogged it and and some guy has come along and bought it and then they've um they you know do, i don't know what they did with the money but they they you know and then they get up on that charge so a uh, guy has asked a question where, where are these 
surgeon's reports? Uh, I would advise you to look at my book because I discuss a lot of this stuff about the ideas about racialized bodies. There you go. There's Rosie's putting my, my book title there. You can go and buy it or get your library to buy it because it's really expensive. Um, and there are, there are surgeons, some surgeons reports in the National Archives, some. There would have been, every regiment had a surgeon and every regiment surgeon would have provided an annual report back to the Army Medical Department in London. Only a small fraction of those exist, but some of the data was collected and um, printed in statistical form. Uh, so we do know a reasonable amount about it. Um, but these ideas about black skin appear in lots of standard medical journals as well. Um, so they, you, you, you get, um, and a lot, of this, a lot of the medical journals and a lot of this writing about black bodies are written by people who were surgeons in the Caribbean. Um, so they, it's, it's amazing how many of these people who write about um, tropical diseases or about uh, um, you know, army life and everything like that, when you look at their careers, they spent five years in Jamaica or in a, in a garrison hospital in Barbados. And some of them were actually attached to the West India regiments at some point or went on campaign with them. So that, that's really frequent. And that's therefore they, they have first-hand knowledge of these men, which is, you know, great. It was great for me when I was writing my book. So. Okay. Alison, did you want to ask another question or was your hand raised from before? No, I'm, I, I'm, I want to touch on something that Tim mm -hmm. talked about just now. Please do in terms of the integration um because again this is what really this is my area that continues to fascinate me um because one of the things that intrigues me here is this idea that you have these free people who are coming and settling and tim you talked about them um you know kind of i guess marrying with the local population but of course given that many of these folks who were there, who were also black, would have been enslaved. And of course the status of the child would follow the mother. And then um, these Americans definitely in Trinidad are of a different re um, religious and cultural background from many of the Trinidadians there. I mean, this, this place that they're settled in is seriously isolated from the rest of the island. I mean, seriously, seriously isolated. I would say even today. <laughs> Um, Alison, where is it in Trinidad? Where? It's in the southern part of, it's mostly in the southern part and um, as someone who grew up in Trinidad, I may have went there once or twice in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh -huh. so it's just, it's interesting to me. So I'm wondering um, in terms of what you were hinting at this integration just how much really takes place prior to um, the ending of slavery, right? Because remember, even after slavery ends, there are all these laws that are passed that say that Black, the formerly enslaved Africans have severe restrictions even on their ability to purchase land on the island, right? Whereas the Americans have land Okay, so that's why I'm saying that I, I think mm -hmm. there, there are distinctions and these distinctions are even present today. People who take absolute pride in knowing that they are descendants of Americans versus 
people like me who just don't know who the hell came off the boat when. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's it's a it's a subject that would be great to research more if the data was there and if the information was there. We know that the men of the regiments had wives, and these wives, one has to think, came from the local population. And we know that because in the annual returns of the regiments, they list women and children, sort of hangers-on, effectively, um, and. Some of the reports, the annual reports, talk about uh, women doing, uh, you know, the cooking for their men, doing the cleaning for their men. Um, Sorry to interrupt you, didn't some of them get on the ships with their families? Because that's the reports that I have from South Carolina. That oh, yeah. Them... Yeah, they did. I, I was more talking about um, the men in the West India regiments. These, I mean, again, the colonial marines who become the, Ameri the Americans are... Um, I was, I was distinguishing them and the, um, uh, the West Indian Regiment soldiers who we know had, some of them had local wives. Um, so the, the, the Americans, um, they, they came as family groups, I guess, didn't they? Um, just like the Carolina Corps in the Revolutionary War, we know they end up settling in, I think, St. Lucia, or they, and then they spent some time in Grenada. But they, again, there are men and women and children attached to that corps as well, all coming from South Carolina uh, in the 1780s. Um, and we, so we know a little bit about um, family life, but not very much. Um, we, we know a little bit about, about statistics, but uh, not enough even to write an article, I guess. <laughs> so. I think Kate has a question. I, I don't know if I'm butting in before Zachary, if that's a new hand or an, an old hand. Okay. Um, I, I just wanted to ask about the 1802 mutiny in Dominica and, you know, given the timing of it and, you know, you've mentioned that um, some of the members of the regiment had been um, recruited into the regiment having come from San Domingue when the British evacuated. I wondered, are there any Sorry if this is a basic question, but are there any connections between events in San Domingue and the mutiny in 1802 in Dominica in terms of... I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so, because um, uh, there are very specific causes of the mutiny in 1802. And uh, the, the person we blame with complete justification is the governor, who's, who's you know, an imperial shyster of like the highest level. Um, and how that this guy didn't end up in in prison? Uh, well, he, I don't know because he scammed his way to the highest office and should have been, you know, done. And even his brother at one point denounces him as a scoundrel. <laughs> so, um, you know, he reminds me of certain politicians today. I, I, I'm not going to name any. Um, but he. Uh, there's very specific causes about how these men are being used in Dominica and it's and it's and it's not doesn't seem to be um a general spirit of rebelliousness about um you know black life whatever um and it's only ever I'm trying to think no more than about a fifth of the men are involved uh so it's not all of them um but it's an interesting, it's a really interesting episode. And I, I mean, I was really interested to hear that Zachary was doing some archaeological work there because uh, there's so many things we don't know about that, that mutiny that archaeology could find, that, that could be the answer. And I remember speaking to um, 
uh, what's the guy's name? The guy, you know, the famous guy who talks. Um, talking Lennox Honeychurch. Yes, Lennox. I remember Lennox. talking to him, and um, he was talking to me about you know some of the archaeological possibilities. So I, I, I mean, I'm hoping that you're doing some of those. So um, we don't, for example, know where all the men were buried who were shot. Who were shot? I mean, there was hundreds of them. Well, more than a hundred were killed uh, as a result of the mutiny, and again, erased, disappeared, these guys. So, um, almost certainly buried somewhere on that fort, but but where, we don't know. And again, right for archeology, span and, and there's so many great sources written about it. There's so many first-hand accounts of it. Um, there's so many inquests and post-mutiny uh, um, inquiries. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, Johnston is even, you know, court-martialed and there's like a 700 page court-martial document about him, but when, when she gets off, it's like how he gets off is a mystery to me. <laughs> um, he was a governor. Yeah. He was a governor. Uh, Zachary, uh, is your hand raised for... Yeah, it is, Dad, thank you so much. Again, I just, it's been a kind of isolating, depressing uh, week or so of marking exams here. So this is just a great opportunity, especially <laughs> to talk about an exciting topic like this. And just, Tim, I think Buckley talks about 13,000 uh, 13, to 14,000 uh, uh, purchased straight from yeah. West Africa, 700,000 pounds or something like that. Uh, but this question, and I, many people, Gad, Allison, and others have talked about integration, interaction once uh, black soldiers are free and entering communities. One of the things and, and Tim, I'll be honest with the archeology, span was very focused on uh, the labor village, which is very rare within fort life to have that clearly marked off on a series of maps. So that was good for archeology span and comparing that to the material realities in the outer Kibritz soldiers barracks where a number of the men involved in 1802 likely came down and that's a hike and a half, but it's, uh, it's something, something, but what, one of the most remarkable assemblages from that work, uh, the, the housing patterns, and I've tried to, I mentioned a question comparing housing materials, but within the household of what is marked as pioneer labor hut uh, is, is an assemblage of low fired coarse earthenware. So this is like the, the pots that Creole foodways emerge from within this labor hut, along with a a sixth West India Regiment Baldrick buckle uh, that they likely served in Dominica. Again, it's after the revolt, uh, 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 but shows this level of interaction likely, whether it's enslaved labor going, enslaved soldier going down there, interacting within this village compound or British army strategy of relocating soldiers. They move West India Regiment individuals in there, but you're dealing with you know, layers of ethnically similar but socially distinct populations that are integrating within the walls of, of, of colonial forts, you know? So, and I just, and I'm from there, my, my question, and I'm, I'm again distracted, uh, the question would be, did you see in your research, and I know uh, uh, it, it's quite limited, uh, whether it was fears of interaction between armed formal black soldiers and local enslaved populations or actual realities of, hey, we lost a handful of, 
of, of black soldiers today. They went off into the, the swamp. They went off and they're rumored to be on this estate. Did you, have you come across those types of instances in the, in the archival record? There's material evidence archeologically, but I wonder from, from archives, whether it's fear or reality being expressed about that point. Thank you. I think the fear is in, in is much much larger than the reality of it. I mean, Rosie wrote a, you know a great PhD on this. Um, so th this fear of black soldiers combining with um, the local enslaved population is is expressed very forcefully by lots of West Indian planters. You know, at the time when the West Regiments are formed in 1795, right through till well, you're still reading that, and 30, 40 years later. Um, the reality is the opposite, I would say. Um, you know, we know that the West India Regiment, the first West India Regiment was absolutely crucial in suppressing the slave revolt in Barbados in 1816. They were absolutely crucial to suppressing the revolt in Demerara in 1823. So, and then they are heavily involved with the suppression of the Moranbe Rebellion in 1865. So they identify with um, their officers and the wider, idea of being an army soldier much more so than they do with the enslaved population and you know why they're so outraged in Dominica in 1802 is because the governor is treating them like slaves it's like we are not slaves we are the king's men we are we have that pride we have the red coat um, don't you dare treat us like slaves and if you do this is going to be the consequence um, and they're quite happy to have informal interactions with enslaved people um, you know in 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 Dominica in 1802, we know that local uh, people in that, that little, there's a little settlement called Portsmouth just next to, um, the, next to the fort. That's and where, yeah. Yeah, we know that um, this is where, you know, pe some people are, are meeting and they're, they're common conversations and that these uh, enslaved people are the ones saying, they're treating you like slaves. You know what they're gonna do? They're gonna make you slaves next. Uh, and they're sort of like stirring the pot and it's the local slaves who are stirring the pot. Um, and that's what, you know, one of the things that kickstarts this thing. So, um, and it's a great, uh, it's a great, great story, I think. But I see very little interaction. I mean, when people go AWOL, which of course soldiers do all the time, um, they, they nearly always come back. Um, you know, and usually going AWOL meant that they just, didn't come back in time, so and then they get beaten, and that's why you read the, the records. But not many. You I mean you read desertion records, but they're not they're not that common. I think um, I think we have stretched Tim uh, not as far as he can go. He can go a lot further. I know this personally. Um, there's a lot of very, very interesting stuff in the chat. If, you, if people are interested in looking at it, it's great to have had this conversation. Uh, uh, Zachary in particular from an historical archaeological point of view, particularly interesting and from everybody else in Trinidad. Uh, so uh, Zoom uh, has its advantages as we can see from the questions, the, where people are from and, and the chat. Um, I wanna thank Tim for a, a great presentation. You can see that by the nature of the questions. I will just mention uh, before thanking him finally, or again, that we will meet again uh, in two weeks, quite quite soon, on the 2nd of June, when we have Eve Hayes de Calaf, a uh, different topic, but still fascinating, uh, legal identity, race, and belonging in the Dominican Republic. But it remains for me to thank Tim very much. 
uh, I'll be in touch with you anyway, uh, as we normally are. You'll see all the interesting chat and discussion and thanks to you for, for all of this. Uh, and um, uh, we'll hope to see all of you in two weeks time. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks, Rosie. Nice to see you. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate that. Good. Good. Well, I'll, we'll be in touch again. Thanks very much indeed. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Very good. Well, that was good. A lot of um, back and forth from the trinnies in the chat. <laughs> that was really interesting. You remember? You remember John Weiss, presumably? Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um, uh, well, that was. Uh, you're 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 muted. Oh. No, what? no, Steve. Steve. Oh. I used to work with Johnny. He, he was. Uh, uh, he worked in the. Uh, in the art department at the old Kildare University uh, for a long number of years. He was very active in the union and he, uh, 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 in fact, I, I kept up with him because uh, his wife got quite ill in the end, didn't she? And I, uh, no. but, but we used to, uh, uh, I used to, we used to occasionally go meet for a coffee and a chat about things after, uh, 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 but that was, you know, and we were quite surprised when we, when we got to the Society of Caribbean Studies and it was kind of, Oh, you're the same. Oh, you're the same Steve Cushion, are you? You know. <laughs> yes, and his wife subsequently died afterwards, didn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They uh, that Althea, Althea, was her name? Althea, Althea. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. Uh, uh, that film that uh, uh, that that she was in about uh, uh, is there such a thing as a black artist? Oh yeah. It was on the BBC. Uh huh. Uh, that's uh, I've. I'm going to put in the chat. There was um, the VNA recently has put up a lovely little mini introduction to her, and it's got all you know beautiful images of her textiles. Oh yeah. Um, so I've just put that into the chat yeah. link. Um, I thought tonight that that guy Zachary Beer would be an interesting person to have as a speaker. Absolutely. Of someone who does the actual archaeology of, of yeah. the. He, I thought he said he. Uh, I agreed entirely. Agree. Uh, he said he was based in Jamaica. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. I think he. Yeah, he said he'd done. 
archaeological work in Dominica and in Jamaica. But he, I, I don't know if that is that where he's actually from. He, he did say, I am in Jamaica now. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. So whether he's in the Department of History is the Department of History at Edmona has his Department of History and Archaeology. Yeah. Look, him up, look him up at some point. But yeah, I think it's a really good idea. He seemed very lively and interesting. Yeah, with it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, certainly, we'll certainly have his, uh, Oscar will have his email because he will have registered. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can look it up, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure we can find it. Well, I'm not sure, but I guess we can yeah. find it. What else? It was just—it was good to have people from all over the world today. Wow! Yeah. Some of the, you know, big names. It's good. Or relevant people. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't quite get Ro uh, Roseanne Adderley as I know her. Yeah. What she said at the end is, "Yes, continue to call me Roseanne." I guess is that what she said. What I think, what I think she was saying was that her her kind of passport name is Laura, sure. and. The university has set up her Zoom so that that's what it says. Uh, and, uh, uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, it, it, it's the way people keep, you know, sort of phoning me up and saying, hello, Stephen, how are you? And that means I know they're not my friend, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Roseanne Adderley has not only been to the ACH in the past, she's also been to the SCS. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I, I, I recognize her. She, wants, uh, she, she is, as somebody who is myself slightly voluble, I don't hold a candle to Roseanne Adderley. And, she, <laughs> uh, and, and, and Ruth was once uh, with us, I don't know why, in the pub, and she got trapped by, by Roseanne Adderley. And it is memorable. Uh, <laughs> she couldn't escape it. Uh, Roseanne really, yeah, she makes us look quiet. Let's put it that way. But yeah. Anyway, she was very good value, so, you know, yeah, uh, interested. And that's nice. I mean, there you are. She, and people in Trinidad and South Carolina and all that. So that's great. Brinsley Samari told me or took me to the, the places in the south that they were talking about in Trinidad today, the, where the, the Americans went, and then also to this village where um, a particular group of people of Indian descent had gone and settled and intermarried with the African population because they were rejected by the other Indians because they were too dark. Too dark. So they were, and so they all kind of they Christianized and settled in this other village. And to this day in this village in the south of Trinidad, you have very distinctive looking people who are the descendants of these darker skinned South Asians who'd intermarried with the local Africans. But not, but as distinct from the American. Oh, that was a different story to the, yeah, to be right. I'm just recalling a, a, a day trip that Brinsley Samaru took me on in the south of Trinidad, which ended up with a lot of rum and some rather delicious mangoes with um, uh, hot sauce. <laughs> Brinsley Samaru was disappointed once when I rejected his uh, idea of going to get fishing for crabs or something like that about which would start at 3 a.m. And he thought that was a really, that was an idea, his idea of fun. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> you know. You're in the day for you. Well, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but yeah, 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 yeah. But the kind of, the, the chat in, uh, of the Trinidadians in the chat tonight 
seemed to be this distinction between one who had thoroughly imbibed a nationalist narrative about integration and someone who had a more you know, nuanced analysis. Absolutely. Yeah, and then a conference, something about a conference. I didn't. Listen. Oh yeah, no, that looks good. A conference on the narratives of these settlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, shame that Mr. John Weiss not around to participate. I'm sure he would have loved to do that. Oh, I'm sure he would have done so because talking of volubility, John could, uh, uh, John could, John could talk for talk for Trinidad, couldn't he? Yeah. Talk for any, talk for everybody. Yes. Yes. Uh, mm. uh, I yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I was I was the thing that I'm the I'm just thinking about about this. I didn't, you know, that crossed my mind really was, of course, uh, I wonder about comparisons with the way the East India Company used uh, 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 Indian troops, uh, the sepoys as they were called, uh, and I, I, I wonder. I, you know, I'd be interested to uh, uh, do a comparison of conditions, experience. Uh, and so on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. to Tim. You know, no, you're not going to go there. But anyway, no, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No. I thought that was. Um, I thought it raised a lot of a lot of quite fascinating questions about. You know, warfare is not well. All kinds of all kinds of things mm. and perceptions. So. Making me think of. Dylan's particular bugbear is the way in which Belize celebrates as part of its national mythology the British defeat of the Spanish, like as a Belizean heroic moment. But it's basically, you know, uh, enslaved peoples fighting for Britain, but against another colonizer, but it's like integrated into their nationalist founding myths. That's absolutely right. It's just like another example of, you know, Black people's being used to fight for different different colonizers, as in Haiti, right. and, you know, was mentioned tonight. And there's all, but there they kind of celebrate like a national day of this battle of is it called Battle of St George's Key? Um, mm. it's like well, you were fighting for the British. <laughs> What's to celebrate? Of course, uh, of course, what they don't what they don't celebrate there was that the British commander of that, Colonel Despard, oh, yeah. uh, uh, was, uh, 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 was later hanged, was later hanged, drawn and quartered for treason. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, so, you know, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, but now that's, that's what I would celebrate, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yeah. Not that he was hanged. And picking up Kate's point, the, uh, and what Tim said, of course, is really quite, and he said it very clearly. It's so fascinating that, and understandable that, uh, the West India Regiment put down the rebellion in 1816, put down, in Moran Bay, they were atrocious, what they did. Uh, almost worse than white troops. And it's just what he said. I mean, he said, people, he put it very well. They identified with their commander, identified with this, the elite society, yeah. Really quite yeah, amazing. That's your phrase, um, Steve, of Tupney looking down on Hayton or whatever. <laughs> Doing what? <laughs> Tupney's Hayton looking down on Tuppence. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, but, uh, but of course, this, 
you get the same thing in Britain with uh, 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 British soldiers, uh, you know, sort of, and, and the, uh, uh, you know, it was British, British soldiers of working class origin shooting down people in the 1831 general strike, for instance, you know. So it's, it's only the same, uh, uh, you know, it, it just shows how effective actually military discipline is. Uh, uh, and control and power and all that. Yeah, things. yeah. Absolutely. Or in the way have to go. I have to go. But we'll we'll uh, resume in two weeks and think about. Uh, I mean, I think this idea. I'll look up Zachary Beer and uh, see about his potential contribution and think of others. I've already begun to think about it. Yeah. Uh, can I make uh, just before you go? Can I make a suggestion that in November, when Trinidad becomes a republic? Yeah. Uh, uh, could I suggest that we uh, we ask David Comisong, who's the uh, uh, Trinidadian ambassador to uh, CARICOM? Barbados, you mean? Uh, Barbados, sorry. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, uh, for, for Trinidad, read Barbados throughout. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's that's just a suggestion. Yeah, we, we have to mark that uh, for sure. Uh, um, okay, I'm uh, I'm in contact with him, so uh, I could see if he if he, if he's open to the idea, if you like. Get him to get um, Leah Motley to come on to give us a talk. Phone <laughs> <laughs> a word of her. Hey, we'd be honoured to host her. At least, uh, uh, when? This is it's, November, it's November. Uh, now, presumably. Uh, They'll all be busy on the day itself, but sometime around then, in the same month, it might be nice to uh, uh, it might be nice to reflect on, on on it a bit. I mean, I hope this actually happens. I mean, it's supposed to happen, but you know, I, it has to be done by an act of parliament, as I understand it. So, the British Parliament. No, no, no. Uh, theirs. There's been a referendum now, isn't there? No, I don't think they did it by referendum. It was just in in their manifesto, and then they, they won such a thumping victory that yeah. that's you know that's the endorsement. It doesn't have to go to a referendum technically anyway. It can be done, you know, yeah. to to kind of rubber to to kind of give the political party something to hide behind that this is or the population wanted this. But in their case, they've just sort of gone ahead and said, "We're doing this. It's time to do it." But I think that you know the technicalities of how it actually gets. I'm sure you know it has to be passed through Parliament, if I understand my constitutions correctly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a kind of watch this space for them actually doing it. Mm. Oh well, if it all goes if it all goes wrong, we'll have to ask him to come and explain why it's wrong. <laughs> Either way, right? Either way. Great. Okay, well that went well. I'll I will uh, I'll be in touch with Tim anyway, and I'll thank him. Lovely. Yeah. Uh, thank and, you. And, and so yeah. So we'll be see you in a couple of weeks. Yep.